Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, a podcast produced by the Louis Jacobs Foundation and committed to Rabbi Jacobs's belief that the quest for Torah is itself Torah. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I am joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new paths on the quest for Torah. And this week, it is wonderful to have with us our very own director of the Louis Jacobs Foundation, Rabbi Adam Zagoria Moffett, who is, of course, also the rabbi of St. Albans Masorti Synagogue in the UK. He also is editor-in-chief of Izun Books, received ordination from JTS, in America and completed also a master's in Jewish thought there too. And maybe to begin with, actually, before tackling um, Parashat Toldot that we look forward to speaking about, Izun has just published a new book, Voices of Hope, Responses to the 7th of October. And maybe Rabbi Adam, just to speak briefly about that, what is it that we hope to gain from the publication? Sure. Thank you for having me on some, especially under the circumstances. And the book, Voices of Hope, that we've just put out, which you and I have worked on together, along with the incredible contributions of 36 scholars from around the world, Israel, not in Israel, from all points of view, the idea was in some way to survey the Jewish world for what people are thinking right now in response to the attacks of October 7th and the war that has developed since, and particularly to try and exemplify what it looks like to have a theological response to the conflict and to the events of that dark day. In some way, we were inspired by Rabbi Louis Jacobs himself, who wrote many fascinating pieces in response to war and conflict in Israel, one of which we actually include in the book as a preface in his response to the Six-Day War, which he wrote a few months later. Incredible passage that now seems very prescient in many ways. So we're hoping to contribute in some way to people's own understanding of what's going on and also to contribute to the historical recollection of how Judaism interprets these events and how Jewish leaders and thought leaders in particular around the world understand what's going on right now. It's obviously a very different collection of writing compared to what we see in the sort of stream of social media and of course in the news and so on. What maybe out of the essays do you see as perhaps the hope that 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 can come out of these dark days? I think the hope in some way is that lines are shifting and people's sense of what is taken for granted, what the assumptions are about Israel, about the conflict, about the future, it's all moved in some way. And a lot of that is very destabilizing and that as well in the essays, a lot of people find themselves adrift politically and theologically regarding how they understand what's going on. But it's also an opportunity. And I think lots of our contributors really hone in on the fact that this gives us a chance to think differently about the conflict. And as we move through it, if we're thinking carefully about it and open to thinking differently about it, 
maybe there's some hope just simply in the fact that new ideas might be able to enter the fray, new ways of approaching the problem might allow us to exploit them, and new new voices as well, to some degree, are part of the conversation that maybe weren't a couple of years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And ultimately, that's a good thing, because it means that things can change and develop and grow to a better place, we hope. Thank you um, so much for speaking to that and introducing our, our, our project available now on Amazon and also from, of course, your publisher site isunbooks.com and available for £8.99. Look forward to our audience buying it and some of the proceeds, of course, go to families troubled by the conflict in southern Israel. Look forward to comments and our listenership reading it too. That would be wonderful. Please leave a review if you do read it. Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All important. Yeah, we, we need to get to 50 reviews on Amazon for it to become acknowledged and well recognized let's maybe turn now if we can to this week's parsha which of course is told dot and we read about the relationship between jacob and esau which is one which goes back quite literally to the womb how would you describe then the the relationship between the two brothers in the parsha I tend to really look at these two as mythological archetypes to some extent. Obviously, they have huge amounts of detail about them, more than many of the previous generation narrated in Genesis. And they also, in some way, help us to structure our conception of what a hero and a villain look like. And I think for us, it's a lot more complicated than it seems at first. Jacob is obviously our hero. There's no chance to entertain any alternative. And Aesop is obviously our villain. But Jacob is not quite the hero we might think, and Esau is not quite the villain we might think at first glance. And to me, that's the most interesting thing, is understanding how they play off each other in this slightly more sophisticated way than it seems at first. So maybe before going into a little bit more depth as to their relationship, how would you say that their relationship compares to other sibling relationships that we've seen so far up to this point in the book of Bereshit? I think for the first time, these two are explicitly contrasted with each other. You have a little bit of it with Cain and Abel, but we don't really have enough information there to have a real sense of who these two are. By the time we get to know them, they're already killing each other. And with Yitzhak and Yishmael, they actually are never contrasted in the same way. Only by their parents are they isolated from one another. And in fact, we saw Isaac at the end of last week go to seek out his brother to reconcile to some degree, although it's happening slightly off screen in the Torah. We see that Isaac and Ishmael have a relationship later in life. So this is really the first time where we have a purposeful framing of two opposites. And that, again, this kind of mythological, psychological archetype way of reading them makes so much sense because of that. We have Esau, who is a man who knows the hunt, a man of the open field, and Yaakov, who is plain, simple, tom, whether that means blameless or quiet or however many ways we might try and translate it, is some way in which he's being characterized as the polar opposite of his brother. 
And it's the two of them who define, as a result, our most primordial sense of who a hero is and why. And it's not what we usually would want to believe or necessarily tell ourselves about our heroes and our villains. But that's what they're meant to be to me, is this first ever cultural exploration of what the good guy and the bad guy in the story are meant to look like. And of course, it makes sense that they would be brothers in doing so. Maybe diving in then to how their sibling rivalry plays out in the narrative. How do you see that impacts the characters? And we see the sibling rivalry, which, as I said, goes goes back literally right to to the womb. It feels and and then is and then is played out. How what's the role of this sibling rivalry that we see? I think the point, to some extent, if we look at this week's Barasha together with next week's and look at the broader narrative, the point is a sort of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? Jacob and Esav are these opposites. And we actually probably find ourselves, at least many modern readers do, sympathizing more with Esav, considering the way in which his brother exploits and deceives him. And yet Jacob remains our hero, but we're somewhat uncomfortable with him as a hero for the time being. And as we follow him through his life, it's really only later when the brothers reconcile, when these two opposites become combined in one through the episode of his fight with himself, with his brother, with the angel, whatever happens later. It's then with his name change that Jacob actually becomes the combination of the two, right? Israel is actually Jacob and Esau mixed together in some case. I think we're meant to see them as these contrary composites that ultimately end up combined. And it takes some time to get there. And it's a bit of a journey. But in some way, it's a very good analogy for how we tend to think about heroes and villains and how we think about ourselves and our own psychology, how we pit parts of ourselves against each other and how ultimately, if we want to grow, we have to ultimately be happy to combine them to integrate them. And sometimes that involves conflict. So their rivalry is essential. Right. And it's essential because they have to be enemies first in order to eventually be able to move past their conflict and reconcile. And we, as the reader, are some in some way kind of sitting back and watching this take place and finding ourselves sympathizing or cheering for or condemning one character or the other. But I think the great twist that comes about is in some way you need both of them. And for Jacob to grow and develop and become Israel, he needs both of them. Obviously, their rivalry isn't just played out between them, but the role of their parents, of course, play an important contributing factor between them in their dynamic. What do you see really as the role of of Isaac and Rebecca in how their dynamic plays out. It's hard. It's almost the opposite in some way. And it's tragic for me every time we read this, because last week when we see Isaac and Rebecca meet, they are the only ones who are described as loving one another. They're the only couple of the patriarchs and matriarchs who are described as being monogamous. And it seems like we actually have this picture of composite of compound of actually what does it mean to take two people and make them into one unit a real genuine couple a power couple as it might be and that is very short-lived because now later in their lives they're 
pitting their children against each other. And I think it in some way shows those two sides of the individual to analogize it to psychology, where Isaac and Rebecca actually in some way devolve. They were united. Their children cause a conflict between them, and they end up taking sides. And the sides largely are mapped onto Jacob and Esau. Rebecca, like Jacob, is cunning. She's deceiving. There's lots of ways in which we could read the episode last week in the Torah portion about how she's first found by Eliezer, where she is the one controlling the story. She tricks her brother. She tricks Eliezer. She tricks everyone, perhaps, in order to getting what she wants. And in some way, she finds a complementary partner in Isaac. But as time goes on, as Jacob emerges as the one which is closer to her in that sense of being somewhat deceiving, ambitious. They're words that we often say in a negative way, but the whole point of the story is Jacob is our hero. So I think we have to contend with that very fact that we see this split between Rebecca and Jacob on one side, who are prized for their ability to control a situation, to manipulate others. And then Isaac and Esau, who are never people who do anything wrong, but are nonetheless seen as villains by the text, precisely because they can't quite outsmart the other one in their lives. And I think that's the challenge, is we have, in some way, Rebecca's struggle reflected in Jacob, and he has to figure out what to do with it. Like many of us, we live out our, our own parents' trauma and our own parents' ambitions and hopes for us. And Rebecca puts a lot of her hopes on Jacob. She makes him into her tool in her own effort to try and control the situation. And we can't really blame her for it because she probably has pretty good reasons. But she is in some way modeling for him what it means to deceive those you love. And that's hard for us to see. Um, fascinating web and entanglement of emotion and deception and 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 family. Uh, what then does the character of God play in the involvement of of events? How can we? What's what? What do we see as as God in God's involvement in the events and how they play out? Like so many of these stories, God is largely in the background, if at all. God is only really entering the picture later when Jacob first has an experience of encountering God. And even then, it's only after he leaves the family home. Unlike Abraham, who is encountering God in a very personal way earlier in his life, and who is counseled by God on what to do, and unlike Isaac to some extent, who perhaps has his own relationship with God, which is less clear from the text, Jacob will have that relationship but it only happens later. And it's central to him exploring his identity as a trickster. I genuinely think that Jacob is our Odysseus. He's a culture hero, and he's a trickster. He's a founder of our identity as a nation. And yet he's someone who is prized for his cunning ability to manipulate the situation. And it's interesting if we consider God's role that God chooses, of all the people that could have been chosen from this family, and there's many who exist, again, off-scene, God chooses Jacob, who deceived his brother, who deceives his uncle, who is constantly striving to try and control the situation. And ultimately, it's Jacob's encounter with his inability to succeed in that regard 
his inability to completely control events, his inability to completely banish himself of the Asav part of his life, and the encounter with Asav that comes later, facilitated, it would seem, by God, that makes Jacob into Israel. And that's, I think that's the point of the story, is that God needs to work with Jacob and work on Jacob for him to be who he needs to be. And that takes conflict first, as in later reconciliation. Maybe just probing a little bit more, and perhaps this does veer into next week's parsha. but what do you make of the fact that really it's only after Jacob's deception that he encounters God? I think in some ways, it's, it's really, that's what makes it so interesting from the point of view of thinking about it as a psychological analogy, right? Is that it's in the wilderness, not just metaphorically, but also in some case, literally, where the opportunity for one to contend with their own flaws, their own features, their own failures really takes place. And that with Abraham and Isaac to some extent, but it's really Jacob who, after he has embraced this role of being the trickster, the manipulator, the deceiver, after he's associated with him using his power of intelligence in order to trick his brother and his father, it's then that God enters the scene and offers a kind of patronage, which in some way would make us frustrated. I think those of us who want to see Jacob as an eminently moral character because he represents our identity are frustrated because we want God to rebuke Jacob and to say, actually, this isn't how you behave yourself. You can't get what you want by tricking other people. But that's not the case at all. Right? In fact, God chooses Jacob precisely because of that. And the image of the ladder that he's going to experience next week when he sees it, it's something that inspires him and changes him in a way that God is controlling and not Jacob for the first time. And I think that's what's interesting about it is that for Jacob, who's defined by his ability to manipulate the situation and control other people and be cunning, the only one who can outsmart him is God. And his revelation when he wakes up to say, actually, I got this all wrong. This is the gate of the heavens, not what I thought it was, is an incredible moment of humility, of him recognizing that actually he doesn't understand everything that's going on around him, and maybe there's something he can learn about it. It takes a while for him to get there, but his vow that he makes to say that I will try to do my best, and I will try to come back to my father's house in peace if God is with me is actually a really telling statement because it shows that Jacob is thinking about how does he resolve the conflict within himself long term. And part of it has to be tapping into this kind of unconscious power of God. Some definite seeds uh, planted as well for next week. Maybe finally, just to draw some implications for today and those themes of family deception, blessings, blessings that go wrong or perhaps go wrong. What do you see as some of the key learnings from this week's Parsha for today? I think one of the key things is about how we tell stories, right? And what it means to talk about heroes and villains. I think we should try and reflect on how we characterize the good guys and the bad guys in the stories we tell. Anyone who's a fan of comic books or superhero movies or any real franchise these days will appreciate that what makes a villain interesting 
is that they're complicated and ultimately that they're sympathetic. Right? The villains we really want to connect with, the villains we really think about and remember, are those whose intentions we understand, whether that's Magneto or Thanos or the Joker or whomever. They're relatable because we can see ourselves in them and we can understand how they got there, even if we think it's wrong. Thanos wants to wipe out half of all life. We probably don't want to do that, but we can understand where he's coming from, maybe a little bit. That sympathetic villain is in some way exemplified by Aesov, who actually is completely justified in being angry, completely justified in wanting to chase Jacob down because he was deceived and he didn't do anything wrong other than try and honor his family. The rabbis stretch themselves into absolute knots, trying to prove that Aesop is evil, but nothing in the text suggests that whatsoever. And I think that's okay. He doesn't need to be evil to be the villain. The villain simply is the person who we ultimately identify with being a part of ourselves we don't like. Right? And what's interesting about that then is that what we do identify with, we as a people, our culture hero, our example, our namesake, is someone who actually is prized and celebrated for his ability to be tricksy, to convince and to persuade and to control and to be somewhat cunning, to be in some case a Slytherin of the Torah, cunning and ambitious. And we, I think, feel a bit uncomfortable with that. But I think if we're okay with being uncomfortable with it now, and if we stay with Jacob through the next few weeks, if we watch how he grows, how God enters his life, how that helps him tap into something bigger, how he sees the failure of his own ability to be cunning, how he realizes that maybe Aesop is part of the puzzle for his own development. I think we ultimately get to a place where we can see in him our own growth and development, what it looks like to grow into a full person, how one becomes neither a hero nor a villain, but simply the main character of our own story. And I think that's the key element of Jacob's development. And it starts even now, with his juvenile, foolish belief that actually he's in control. And we can look at that and be sympathetic to that, just as we can be sympathetic to Aesov. But we need to hang on a bit further to see where it's going to go, because actually what's essential to us is how he becomes Israel. And it's a lot more than just changing his name. It's really about combining together his personality, his identity, and his brother's learning the best of both, and dissolving this binary between good and evil, hero and villain, and becoming something much greater in some sense, because of his relationship with God, because of the mission he's entrusted with, and because of the generations that are going to come after who are going to call themselves by his name. Do you see that Jacob is really the, the forefather who changes the most, who undertakes more of a journey than the other two. Absolutely. he. This is a real genuine quest that he's going on, and there's going to be ups and downs to it, and parts that we are cheering for, and parts that we are shouting about, and I think that it's really important that we try and go with him, because he ultimately is an example for us. And also, he is the one who we uphold as being our exemplar. And that matters. It matters who Jacob is. It matters how he grows. It matters that actually, at the end of the day, we do celebrate someone for being cunning. That trickster culture hero identity that we see in Jacob is something that is part of who we are. It's part of our cultural DNA. And it's not a bad thing, but it needs to be understood in the context of his quest and his journey. 
And unlike many of the other characters in the book of Genesis, maybe with the exception of Joseph, who goes on his own quest and journey, Jacob really does grow. He really does change. He integrates those elements of his personality. He fights the villain within himself and within the person of his brother. And he comes out of it something different and better and stronger. And we can do the same. Rabbi Adams, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing history's first trickster and quester. Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs would certainly find much inspiration from this quester for sure. And the quest will continue, of course, as we continue to explore um, Jacob's journey next week as well. So really a huge thank you. And a reminder to all of our audience to log on to either Amazon or isonbooks.com to purchase Voices of Hope. And we look forward to your comments. Thank you for listening today, everyone. If you like this podcast, please do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more information about the work that we do on our sites, louisjacobs.org and jewishquest.org. Do tune in again next week as we continue the quest together.